3CR, radio that's independent, progressive and making a difference. And welcome to The Renegade Economist with your host, Carl Fitzgerald, here shining a light on the powers of monopoly. Today, we're broadcasting the Q&A session from a panel I appeared on last week called Quarter Acre. On the home front, where is our great Australian dream? So uh, this panel features former Mayor Megan Hooper and visual artist Jesse and as compared by Adrian uh, Hayward, this was uh, recorded at Blindside Gallery in the city. So let's jump straight into the Q&A session at Cordraker. There's a lot of talk about apartments. There's a lot of talk about houses being knocked down and cut in half and apartments built. And I call them the grey boxes of doom, the... Uh, half houses but I am looking for a house but I have to get a mini house or a grey box of doom because I cannot afford a big house so it's sad I would love the whole block but so that's what I'm facing it's really awful Um, I just want to ask you guys what happens to the community when everything's replaced with those little houses all those apartments all those townhouses you know because um, Verity and I were talking to a guy about this issue who was saying he's lived in Brunswick for so long, but he can't anymore. He grew up there, but he can't live there anymore. And how does this work when his home is unavailable to him? So I guess I'm asking how maybe economy-wise, as an artist or you know, as a counsellor, what you think about that? Where do we go from there? Because it's happening. Um, Nicholson Street, for example, is nearly all apartments now. So, yeah. So I was just thinking while you were talking about everything becoming apartments and the change and um, what it means for community of an example um, on Nicholson Street um, that's recently was called before the Minister um, because we were worried about the decision that VCAT was going to make um, opposite Triple R radio station and I acknowledge that I have an inherent conflict of interest because I'm a member of Triple R and I just love everything that they do um, but I think many people in Brunswick could say the same thing. Uh, directly opposite them a developer was proposing to put up a six-storey development where our structure plan says we would prefer four and Triple R actually turned to the developer and said, if you put that sixth story, it will block our Fresnel zone, which is the zone that sort of emits between the radio station and the tower off in the Dandenong somewhere. So literally this sixth story would have ended Triple R's ability to function at that space. They would have had to move. And when that was put to the developer exactly that way, they were just like, no, no, we still want the sixth story. Um, And they, you know, took it to our urban planning committee meeting and council rejected it, but then they're taking it to VCAT. And it's just this lack of community sentiment in building that's taking place, I think. You know, there's no responsiveness to what the community wants or what is there already or the fabric that exists in Brunswick. It's just like, well, here is a box of land and here are the boxes that I want to build on top of it and it really is indiscriminate to me whether that means that I'm going to block out one of Melbourne's most successful community radio stations. Uh, So we were very fortunate that the planning minister called that in and that he rejected the sixth and fifth story and that it's going to be built at four storeys but that often doesn't happen you know Um, we don't get that lucky sometimes and I mean certainly 
I live in Brunswick, I rent. Um, and, you know, even as a mayor, um, to say that, you know, I rent and could not be in a position to afford to buy in Brunswick East, I'm single. Um, I live with my cat and so, you know, I don't have a sibling to buy in with um, or a partner. Um, and just, yeah, for a single woman um, with a job that, you know, might change um, when you stop being mayor, it's impossible. Um, to fathom being able to buy in East Brunswick. So I'm very aware um, of those realities and I think it does change the community. And, and yeah, there you are uh, signing up to a uh, $450,000 mortgage for a shared wall that's some um, three to five centimetres thick. And uh, the great tragedy is that uh, 70 to 80% of that mortgage is the land component that uh, supposedly was a gift to all mankind. So we've commodified the earth to the nth degree and property speculation is, uh, is just out of hand. And in the latest series of um, True Detective, there was a great line in there that Vince Vaughan uh, launched into where he said that land rezoning is the last pork barrel next to defence. And so we've seen the Fisherman's Bend debate open up in the last couple of weeks where there was a big paper out talking about how they've just uh, rezoned all of these uh, 30, 50, 60 storey homes. And it's because of that drive for profit that is allowed because our tax system is, has been so thoroughly inverted to allow all of these uh, uh, windfall profits to occur. So uh, that's a great tragedy that community really comes uh, in, in second place to this profit motive. And we like to remind people that uh, whilst we've been in a way brainwashed to despise our tax system, uh, it is a proactive measure to not only raise revenue but encourage good behaviour. And that's been the problem is that on so many levels there have been all these schisms put in place such as with your council rates when you uh, put on solar panels or a water tank or renovate your council rates go up so everyone hates it. Um, but if you've got an old weatherboard home that uh, you know, is probably great for affordable housing, cheap rental, uh, the incentive is there to knock it over and leave it empty and be photographed by Jessie as uh, she walks around going, why is this so? And we all walk past these empty properties or empty shops uh, every single week and it's just uh, uh, been so difficult to join the dots because uh, in our view in the 1880s, back when the robber barons were making an absolute killing with uh, the train lines to America, there was this huge economics movement to capture some of this value and share it with the public. Well, they said, hang on a minute, we're going to fund the world's best academics and pull the earth out of the core economic function so that we just debate over capital versus labour and we forget the earth. So there you go. That's a, another deep conversation that we'll leave there. Um. Well, in terms of apartments, I really feel like architecture's always proclaiming that they can improve our lives with good design, and I feel like that is something that really could be improved if these developments weren't allowed to be done without the input of, you know, architects. I feel like that would really change, you know, like places like the Commons. Um, there are a few groups like that 
that are doing these really well-intentioned kind of um, uh, developments. But the reality is, is that um, they're guardians of the intent and that needs to filter down into how everything is constructed. It can't just be these boutique developments that are available to a minority of people because they will still be subject to um, property speculation and they won't be accessible in a few years' time because they'll be worth more because they're these, you know, well-known boutique kind of developments. So, you know, if we are heading towards a more dense urban environment and more people are going to live in apartments, then they need to, you know, the design of them needs to be improved, basically. Or not, you know, and everyone will just live in horrible apartments. You know, that's the reality. Like, that is, that is the reality. And, um, yeah, that's kind of what I think. <laughs> Yeah, what a pity we spend so much on land so that there's not enough money left over to employ these good architects. Have, have you got an agenda around this thing, Carl? Would anyone like to ask a question? Penny? Um, I'm Penny, I've got the, the video work around the corner that you can hear the birds tweeting as we sit here. Uh, and that's actually my mum's pool. Well, it was a pool, it was her swimming pool. I grew up swimming in the... It was the neighbours then, but in that pool. Um, and with time, it kind of feeds into what you were talking about. My mum's 84 now, and 10 years ago the pool broke, and that was it. She just couldn't do it anymore. But also, she's got 12 townhouses down the side of her property, and so what's going to happen to her house when she does sell it is it will be no more. And um, feeding into that thing of good architects, you know, it's a good block of land that, that needs that. And my question is, um, with the Nightingale development in Brunswick, which was incredible and sustainable and everything, who objected to it that got it to VCAT? I did have that question. Yeah, so um, we were discussing this actually before the panel started. It only received one objection um, and the objection was from a developer um, who is developing the neighbouring property. Um, so he, no conflict of interest there, uh, has an inherent interest in car parking in the area. And look, if we're being completely truthful, um, there are some people who live in the commons who have held on to their cars um, and park on neighbouring streets because they don't have access to private car parking. Um, and he introduced that as information in the hearing and said, well, look, we already have examples and we're right on Breeze Street and the development here is crazy and there's no car parks. And so whilst they're saying the people who are going to move into Nightingale don't have cars, that hasn't borne out to be completely true in the case of the Commons. So it's tricky, um, but currently VCAT doesn't consider the number of objections as a sort of determining factor in its decision-making process. Everything's around the planning law, um, which is a very interesting argument um, and something that the planning minister's looking at introducing into their considerations because you do get examples like Nightingale where there's only one objection and it's a developer um, and it gets rejected and then you get examples like the Oak Park Fish and Chip Shop on Winifred Street um, which is in a very suburban, very tree-lined, the prevailing character is all single and occasional double-storey developments and VCAT has approved a four-storey um, cookie-cutter box of apartments on that site with 699 community objections. 
So you look at <laughs> you look at those two competing examples and you think, well, it's not really about the objections here. There's something like it's obviously there's something in the planning scheme that's amiss that we're getting it so wrong um, that that monstrosity in Oak Park is going ahead and Nightingale isn't. You're on 3CR's Renegade Economist, where we're broadcasting a Q&A session held at the Quarter Acre Exhibition uh, just last week that uh, Councillor Megan Hopper from uh, the City of Moreland, she just recently uh, retired as Mayor, was uh, just speaking there about the controversial Nightingale development, which was knocked back because it didn't have car parking, uh, even though it was located right next to a, a major train station. So quite a controversial development and reflects some of the tension that goes on between uh, the sort of nimbyism and progressive development and how do we find a balance? Well, we have artists, uh, visual artists like Jesse Scott uh, telling the story from an artistic front and it was very interesting to hear some of her commentary uh, over this uh, panel. So let's go back to the discussion. Thanks. It's been really quite wonderful, I think, to hear um, the variety of perspectives on, um, on a really interesting issue. Um, I think another thing that's quite interesting for me is the fact that the discussion's being had at Blindside right now, which has been under kind of severe pressure over the last probably um, four or five years at least um, to potentially get knocked down and turn into apartments. And I think the, the building itself, the Nicholas building, has been uh, survived largely based on the fact that it has um, a lot of heritage listing in the, in the cathedral arcade downstairs. And that's, I think, been um, problematic, as well as some of the previous owners who've been really quite supportive of what's going on. Um, and, and the number of uh, like people that have been moved in here and, and moving through the space that have been uh, craftspeople and kind of creating a really interesting creative community really in the heart of Melbourne is quite interesting. And I, I guess I'm posing a question to you all from various places. Is how do you incentivize from maybe local government standpoints? I think the city of Melbourne's been incredibly supportive of a lot of the things happening inside of this building. Um, but also from, I guess, grassroots level and, um, and not-for-profit organizational spaces, as well as, I guess, from local community and from, like, artist or, you know, where do you go? Like, you're, you're, in your work, you're dealing with very similar issues, Jesse. Is like, how do you maintain some of these creative spaces inside of the city? Because if it does go to kind of a capitalistic tendency, these spaces will obviously get overrun and will be quite quickly turned into whatever can pay the largest buck for the space. Um, so maybe just some throwing that open to incentivizing the location for creatives and um, I guess a bit of fine grain or a bit of something interesting in the center of the city. In the little essay uh, that's in uh, this magazine, I talk about a character called Maxi who who attends uh, the tax minimization for lawyers seminar, which um, I actually did get an invite to at number one Collins Street. And uh, they gave me, would have been close to a decade ago, a description uh, that really shook me and it wasn't racial profiling it was cultural profiling and it was all about how to spot a hipster uh, with black rim glasses and a goatee riding a fixed wheel bike and the guy there stood in front of the crowd saying it's your job to go into the cafe and listen to what they're talking about and it's your job to try and see what triggers their purchasing decisions and it's your job to go and buy in the community they're going to be forced to next and so that's that was a decade ago so the science of this sort of behavior is really well developed and uh, it's it's a tragedy that artists are now um, uh, 
the vanguard to gentrification forces themselves. So they get forced out of St Kilda, up to uh, Fitzroy, um, up to Brunswick, over to Thornbury, out to Reservoir, to Brunswick West, uh, and there I am based uh, in uh, uh, Braybrook, which is in between Sunshine and Footscray West. And the same thing is happening, and unfortunately, hipsters are getting the blame for all this, whereas the property speculators are in there driving it uh, years in front of where the behaviour is. So, again, it comes back to this long-term story that we need to pull this, these speculative incentives out um, in order to slow down the pace of property price growth and with that, uh, rents can be more closely related to the reality of our wages. And that's been the big disjoint that uh, prices uh, increased in Melbourne by $95,000 last year, according to uh, Domain. So whose wage went up that much? Uh, no one's. And I fear that this is just the beginning of this commodification cycle because uh, I must warn you, there's a new product of um, mass destruction emanating out of Wall Street. And uh, uh, with the 2008 crisis, there was the residential-backed mortgage securities. They were the derivatives that happened. Well, not content with the destruction that caused, they've developed a new one called rental-backed mortgage securities. So we have a company called Blackstone Capital um, with all sorts of tentacles. There's an, a whole pile of these uh, companies uh, buying up huge blocks of land with single family rentals on it and jacking the rents up to 30% above the market rents um, uh, in the area uh, and, and having that capital to buy that property from the sale of uh, these derivatives. So it's basically a cash-free purchase based on the securitization of future rental flows. And uh, it's spreading through Japan, through Spain, um, into the UK. So uh, watch out for Blackstone Capital. Yeah, I think this building is a perfect example of what I'm talking about in terms of what people give to buildings and what they get from buildings. And um, this is a really lovely old building but it really wouldn't be anything without the people that are in it and um, you can so easily just destroy that you know it's all of this community all of those intangible kind of connections and histories and, and relationships between people and things that have happened here and energies and all those intangible things it took the building to create that but at the same time it was the people who created it in the building so it's this kind of um, give and take this push and pull between people and the built environment and that has to be really valued to me more important than heritage um, I don't care whether this building had been knocked down if there was nothing in it because you have to knock down things to create new things that's just a fact of life you know um, there would be no Art Deco skyscrapers if they hadn't knocked down all the old Victorian buildings that were in New York, for example. But, yeah, so I think that it's about our values as a community. It's about what we, you know, we actually have to draw a line somewhere and say, like, in this instance, we care more about this, these things than we do about profit. And in terms of artists, I think artists are really resilient and they will find ways to do things in whatever the situation, but it really angers me that they both get instrumentalised in the process and also that they get blamed for it at the same time, you know? So we're like victims and we get blamed for it and that's outrageous. <laughs>
You're on 3CR's Renegade Economist with your host Carl Fitzgerald and yes, we're broadcasting a Q&A from the Nicholson Building in uh, the CBD of Melbourne uh, from the Quarter Acre Exhibition uh, with panellist Jesse Scott. I see as artists, and I'm an artist myself, we often describe in visual ways what is wrong, (laughs) how we take photos of what is wrong. In my art, I try and focus on where people are trying to change things. So I'm very much in rallies and where people are actively doing something. But um, my question kind of is the, the, the way that people own things. And my super, I retired after 30 years of working. My super is involved in property ownership and Um, property development and property profits and um, the the way that the whole world works and I always keep this fact in my mind that 80 people own and control more than 3.4 billion in the world and a lot of them will have interests in Australia of that 80 sort of in our mining property all other things that to get at that issue, it's at the heart of my, my art and the heart of anything to do with how buildings exist. And um, the, I just like um, a response to how do you meld those things? And I, I think that to change it, we have to have a mass revolution, quite honestly, I am a revolutionary. But, um, how do you deal with it as an artist in the meantime? <laughs> Sorry. Yeah, I guess um, just by trying to draw attention to it, by trying to draw people's gaze to these things that are happening around them. That I mean, to be quite honest, I think you know most people observe and uh, know are happening, but maybe don't feel like they have. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so that's how I. You know, that's what I'm doing in my work is just trying to draw people's attention and gaze to the things that I'm observing happening around me so that they don't go unremarked, so they don't go unobserved, you know. But that's, that's kind of where I, uh, I feel like that's all I can do as an artist. Hi, I'm Eva Heike Olga Rabinga. Um, that's my work over there. Um, and my name is actually a merging of my grandmother's names. So Heike is my Dutch side of the family and Olga is my Ukrainian side of the family. And my art practice is based on my personal identity and my relationship to place and sustainability. Um, and my background is in urban planning before I was a, um, f- before I reconnected with my artistic practice, I was working and, um, and had strong values in my utopian values as an urban planner. Um, I guess when I hear the term revolution, um, I immediately um, have to throw in that my understanding of revolution is based on my own family's experience of having endured the Stalinist era. Um, And yeah, uh, I guess, you know, the 10 million people of uh, Ukrainians that suffered from mass starvation need to be kind of considered when we think about revolutionary change. My art practice is more grounded on a gentle approach to change. I definitely have very strong ideals and future values for society, but um, I don't know necessarily if purely an economic view on the situation is the way forward. 
Um, I think that you also need to consider the environmental and the social implications and these things do take time and they are very complex. And um, my question to Carl is perhaps um, uh, as an urban planner, <laughs> uh, what models do you have that you think are currently working that are, are advocating the kind of um, extreme changes that you're suggesting to the taxation system? I wish I could rattle off dozens of them. And uh, having just returned from Detroit a few weeks ago, uh, it's absolute devastation there where they've lost uh, a million people in a decade, well, 20 years sort of thing. And uh, they're having to totally uh, reinvigorate their connection to the land and figure out ways to relocalise on, on so many levels uh, in an environment where they're their governments are drowning in failing infrastructure. So all these sort of problems are happening there. But uh, one of the interesting things uh, that I see is so many people are learning so much through the internet that uh, that self-education is really building up um, a strong uh, bullshit uh, radar on public policy that's being advocated. So uh, one of the good things that's happening on the micro, um, I kind of describe it as a micro version of our macro utopia, is a concept called community land trusts. And the commons in Brunswick is uh, not really a land trust, but it's in that sort of space where the, the, there's an aim to keep a cap on future increases in the property prices so other people uh, can afford to buy that property from them in the future. But uh, yeah, there's a lot of corruption within planning and this rezoning process I hinted at earlier but uh, also uh, attending things like uh, the Melbourne hacker space and seeing what the software developers and, and programs are really up to now. It's just so exciting with this concept of geospatial analysis where things like Google Earth can give us an insight into what's happening in our own community. And I have this dream that in years to come, you'll be able to have be walking through your city um, your suburb with the app showing um, what certain properties have been sold for, what the, what, you know, you click another layer, here's the plan for the region, here's the, the designated, you know, the capacity for art, here's the capacity for parks and gardens and so forth. So I think that in time the democratic interest of the public will really increase with the, the democratisation that the online community um, is moving quite quickly towards. So, uh, well, Melbourne City Council does some great stuff on that in terms of their tagging of uh, trees, for example. They've got some sort of reference point where every tree in the city is geotagged down to the finest grain on, on GPS and so they can reference that on a satellite view and see how the growth of the, the canopy is building to um, build up that uh, a green um, coverage that's needed to deal with the urban um, heat island effects. So those sort of things are really positive but in, you know in terms of one single um, uh, state uh, for example, that does interesting things. I haven't visited it for a long time, but I know Singapore has a home ownership rate um, in the 80 to 90% range. 
and that's because the state owns the land and you just have to buy the building. And so, uh, you know, there's an 80% discount basically on um, your mortgage costs here in Australia. And uh, that is uh, a lot of headroom to be able to pay off your student debts and your credit cards and all the other things so that you can participate in your community without this incredible mortgage dead weight. And so there we have the quarter acre panel that I was on with uh, artist Jesse Scott and former Mayor of Moreland, Megan Hopper. So uh, yeah, if you want to hear more about real estate commodification, this Saturday at oasis.edu.au. Thank you. Um... That's O-A-S-E-S edu.au. I'm presenting on uh, real estate inequality from Detroit to Dandenong. So the show rolls on and uh, I've got to keep the pressure up because it's just carnage what's happening to real estate prices uh, through the roof. Uh, very exciting what's come out in some recent statistics this week that I look forward to bringing to you soon here on the beloved 3CR Airwaves. Stay tuned for Small Talk here on 3CR. Hey, what's up, y'all? This is Paul Miller, a.k.a. DJ Spooky, straight out of New York City. I'm checking in with Australia on 855 on your AM dial. And remember, community radio is subscription-sponsored, and I think it's incredibly important to always remember that it's a different perspective. Check it, community radio, now and beyond. <laughs> 